You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Joshua Habgood Coote talks about his paper, Stop Talking About Fake News, which was published in the journal Inquiry in 2019. Joshua is the Vice Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Bristol, where he conducts research in social epistemology, formal pragmatics, and the role of linguistics in philosophy. So the key claim of the paper is that we should abandon the phrases uh, fake news and post-truth. And I offer three kinds of arguments for that little bit of advice. So the first argument is based on the idea that these phrases do not have stable public meanings, meaning they're not good devices for communicating. The second argument is that they're unnecessary in the light of our kind of already established rich vocabulary for thinking about yeah, epistemic dysfunction and different kinds of false and problematic information. The third argument is that these terms in our current political environment have pretty bad political effects. So they act as kind of vehicles of propaganda, fake news for um, authoritarian propaganda, and post-truth for a kind of centrist or perhaps conservative propaganda. Like a first question that you might have when you're when you hear that the title of the paper is in the imperative mood, it's kind of who put you in charge of uh, language and policing language. Um, so I guess I want to hope that no one's put me in charge of language. That seems like a big responsibility. And I'm really not trying to give commands to anyone about which words they should use. The kind of spirit to take stop talking about fake news in is in the spirit of advice, right? So it's meant to be understood like eat your greens or take regular exercise, not like um, shoot that man or drop on the floor and do 50 press-ups. What got me interested in the topic was reading a bunch of philosophy papers where people were either using post-truth as a kind of framing device or they were trying to analyse fake news or use that term to do some analysis of our current like epistemic situation. And I got kind of worried reading those papers that I really wasn't clear what post-truth or fake news really meant. So at the time I was trying to do some blogging and I wrote up a a uh, quick like 2000 word blog post and the act, kind of the activity of writing up that blog post got me more and more worried that really these terms just didn't mean anything at all and not, not only that they didn't mean anything but that they had some really quite worrying uh political effects at the same time so i should say like it wasn't just me like i'm not claiming like uh like a kind of genius insight here so actually it turns out there are a bunch of other people at the same time having this kind of worry and um, simultaneously uh, people were working on papers like making the same kinds of arguments so there's really interesting papers by Lorna Finlayson, by Frida Vogelman, Robert Talese, David Cody, uh, Johan Farkas and Yannick Shu, and um, uh, kind of more public facing work by Claire Wardle which all express concerns about either fake news or post-truth and kind of advocate some kind of abandonment. So the first kind of reason to abandon fake news and post-truth is that these terms don't have stable public meanings. So starting with fake news, we should ask the question, uh, what does fake news really mean? Philosophers of language have kind of pulled apart a bunch of different senses of meaning. There are different ways of making these kinds of distinctions, but here's a kind of um, overview of different kinds of meanings that terms can have. So they can have descriptive content, which is to do with expressing properties about the world. So 
the word snow might express the property of being snow or walks the property of walking. Terms can also have expressive content, so uh, content like uh, the kind of emotion that you express. So think about saying ouch as expressing pain and they can have evaluative content. So terms like naughty or bad can evaluate the thing they're applied to as bad. When I say that fake news doesn't have a stable public meaning, what I mean is that it doesn't have a stable descriptive content. The kind of first uh, warning sign that fake news doesn't have a clear reference or a clear descriptive content is that it's just used by so many people in so many different ways. Two kinds of uh, diversity here. So there's diversity at the current moment. So there are lots of different communities of people who are using the term with different kinds of meanings to refer to different things. And then there's also a bunch of historical differences. So if we look back in history, fake news, it turns out, goes back to 1890, where it was used just to, I think, refer to bad or to false news stories. It got kind of established in the 90s to refer to satire. So like um, American uh, satire shows that look like news, but were really taking the uh, uh, poking fun at the news um, were fake news. Then it came to mean something to do with malicious spreading of false content and then something to do with profit motivated news. And then at the moment, it's just really unclear. It's used by lots of different people to mean lots of different things. So the other kind of sociological fact, I think we should kind of be worried given that so many people are using the term to refer to so many different things. One kind of worry you might have at this point is that I'm just raising a kind of set of concerns about fake news that we have with lots of ordinary terms of English. So uh, famously, epistemologists have spent, uh, I guess, nearly 80 years, like really, really trying in a concentrated way to define terms like belief and knows. And they haven't succeeded in doing so, right? There are these ongoing questions about what kind of thing knowledge or belief is. So I want to kind of be clear that lots of terms of English have these kinds of uh, problems. They're unclear, they're vague, they're open textured in different kinds of ways. But it feels to me like there's a kind of qualitative difference that terms like knowledge and belief have uh, fringe cases which are unclear. So there's a set of core cases of knowledge, core cases of belief, or like clear different options for ways we might use the term. But when we turn to fake news, it's actually really not clear to me even what the core cases are meant to be. So people do come up with lists of like a kind of fake news stories, but none of them are uncontestable. And similarly, whereas like there might be two different ways we could talk about belief, maybe belief refers to dispositions to assert or dispositions to act in certain ways. With fake news, there are like about eight or nine different ways that we might disambiguate the term. It doesn't have like a couple of clear different senses, there are lots of different senses, and they are closely related in a way that makes it extremely confusing when we try and communicate with the term. One thing we might kind of try and do at this point is to look to dictionary definitions. So a bunch of dictionaries in 2016, 2017, uh, introduced fake news into their uh, kind of set of words they're defined. So we might look at those definitions as a way to kind of pin down the term. This actually is kind of interesting. So if we look at the Oxford English Dictionary definition, they say that it's uh, originally US news, which conveys or incorporates false, fabricated or deliberately misleading information. So they think it's got to be false or made up 
or misleading. Those are different things. But they also say that it could be uh, news which is characterized as false, fabricated or misleading or accused of being that. So this seems like actually a really bad definition because it means that as soon as you characterize something as being false, fabricated or deliberately misleading, it counts as fake news. So it's impossible for people to characterize something as fake news, maybe a group of people to characterize it um, without it in fact being fake news. So um, this definition just seems like it's uh, bad on its own um, merits. Uh, the Collins Dictionary is definition is a bit simpler. So they say uh, that if you describe information as fake news, you mean that it's false, even though it's being reported as news. This raises another kind of interesting question. So what it is to be reported as news? And one of the interesting issues in the background of lots of issues about the definition of fake news is that we don't really have clear definitions of what news is, right? So is news like referring to a story which is passed around um, by people and considered interesting at a time? Is it something that comes out of a news organisation? It's really not clear. And it might be that some of the issues about the definition of fake news, some at least some of them might be ironed out if we had like a clearer definition of news. So at the same time that uh, dictionaries were starting to define fake news, the word was being um, declared as the word of the year by various uh, dictionaries and other um, linguistic organisations. And I think the thought of these kind of word of the year is this is some kind of like term which refers to some phenomenon which is like zeitgeisty, like of the spirit of the moment. I think it's interesting that lots of dictionaries were um, declaring this term their word of the year, others did it for post-truth, but it's also interesting to think about other languages that have similar terms in them. So in German, there's a term uh, Lugenpresse or lying press, which has a long history going back to the 19th century and a significant use by the Nazi party in the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, and it does get used as an attack word in a similar way to fake news. So it's interesting to kind of notice that at the same time, English speaking dictionaries were declaring fake news their word of the year. In Germany, an association of linguistics professionals declared Lugenpresse to be their unword of the year. That's to say a bad word, a word which we shouldn't try and use to analyze anything at all. So let's turn over to post-truth for a second. So the characteristic use of the phrase post-truth is in this phrase, the post-truth era. And this usage was uh, first coined by Steve Tesich to talk about the Iran-Contra scandal. And when he introduced this term, it was extremely unclear what he meant. He had some kind of uh, spiritual condition in mind. He didn't have like a really clear definition of the term. So at the inception of the term, it didn't have a clear meaning already. Following on from that, the term has kind of got all kinds of different uses and two kinds of issues to consider here. So one is when the post-truth era is supposed to be. And the second is what the kind of characteristics of the post-truth era are. The kind of question of when the post-truth era is, we can focus on where and when it's supposed to start. Different authors writing about post-truth. Um, there's a big, uh, popular 
that's right. There's a lot of popular books which uh, titles post-truth or talk about post-truth a lot. In those books, we find massively different uh, sets of uh, supposed like starting dates for the post-truth era. So people talk about uh, Trump's claims around his inauguration, about the numbers of people in the crowd, uh, the kind of amount of false information in the 2016 US election and in the Brexit uh, referendum in the UK. Uh, but then people go back a bit further, talk about Karl Rove's comments about the reality-based community, or even go back to the Iran-Contra scandal. So even though this term is used a lot, people are not clear about when the era is supposed to start. So there's a kind of thought that something has changed, but it's no one has a clear historical sense of when it changed. Second set of issues, so what are the characteristics of the post-truth um, era? So... We're meant to be after truth in some sense, um, but what could that mean? So one kind of definition we might have is that the post-truth era refers to an era without truth, but that's kind of pretty obviously not a good thing to refer to because truth still exists, like sentences are still true, like propositions are still true or false. Historical events aren't going to affect that. Maybe it's got more to do with the value of truth. Maybe people aren't valuing truth enough, truth doesn't play a role in public discourse, or maybe it's not playing enough influence. Some definitions as well refer to like uh, the influence of truth, so they make claims like people uh, are not believing things based on the truth, and it's just like, it's really difficult to see how you could come up with any kind of evidence for these massive broad claims about um, our current political situation. So there's two problems here. One is that the definitions are just like massively different and shifty they mean different things and the other is that there are these big broad brush characterizations of our politics being offered but without any real evidence um, and a kind of thing to hold in your mind here as well is the question of whether there was ever a pre-post-truth era so whether there was an era that had like the existence of truth or truth being properly valued there's a question here for philosophers of language. So how should we treat terms like fake news and post-truth that are used in different ways in different kinds of communities and used in different ways across time? So in the paper, I consider three kinds of diagnosis of this kind of term. The first is that they are nonsense. The second, that they're context sensitive. And the third, that they're contested. So if a term's nonsense, it just doesn't mean anything at all. So when people use the term, they don't express any content and their words are so to speak empty so here i'm uh, tapping into a tradition uh, that goes back through the work of herman kaplan to um, the logical positivist and carnap uh, who claimed that lots of terms in metaphysics especially metaphysics that was associated with uh, the nazi party were nonsense so the people making these kind of claims were uttering empty speech so if fake news and post-truth are nonsense, then whenever people use the terms, they're not expressing anything at all. They're kind of failing to uh, communicate in any way. The second kind of diagnosis of these terms are context sensitive. That's to say that they have different meanings in different contexts. Just like a word, word like tall can mean different things if we're talking about basketball players or talking about primary school children. Maybe fake news means different things in different contexts. This is still bad because it's often not clear what context we're in and um, it's not clear kind of, yeah, which context other people that we're speaking to are in as well. And the third diagnosis that these terms are 
contested. So that's to say that when people use terms like fake news and post-truth, they're not just trying to say something about the world, they're trying to say something about how these words should be used, right? So they're engaged in what philosophers of language and linguists call metalinguistic negotiation. They're negotiating about the meaning of the words. And that's also not good for communication because really what's happening when people are arguing about whether some story is fake news or not is arguing about how to use the term, not about whether the story is really fake news. So I want to be neutral on which of these diagnoses is correct, but to kind of suggest that there's something bad for communication, no matter which one of them is correct. We're not going to be succeeding in communicating with one another if we're using terms that are either nonsense, massively context-sensitive, or are severely contested. The second reason for abandoning these terms is that they are unnecessary. So here I was thinking about uh, philosophers who might take on all of these kind of linguistic confusions and say, well, what we really need to do is to kind of reclaim, ameliorate, or improve the meanings of these terms. And what I was trying to push against those people is that there wasn't really much, there isn't really a good reason to try and reclaim these terms. And that's because we've already got lots of other terms in our language which are pretty clearly defined, maybe not perfectly defined, and that can do the kind of descriptive work that's associated with fake news and post-truth. So here I'm thinking about like ordinary terms like false or lie or misleading, right? But also there might be some terms that are useful to bring in from philosophy. So it might be useful to think not only about lies, people saying things that are false, intending to mislead, but also about bullshit. So people who are saying things without regard to the truth, Frankfurtian sense of bullshit. And the idea here is that it's unnecessary to reclaim fake news to have it mean something because we've already got this rich vocabulary in ordinary language for thinking about, yeah, kinds of false information, kinds of epistemic problems with political content. And it's kind of worth noting here as well that there's a big movement in media studies to move away from talking about fake news towards talking about um, what they call misinformation, disinformation and malinformation. So like content that's false, that's uh, deliberately shared because it's false and content that's harmful. So I think that kind of helps support my argument here. So they're kind of, although they're introducing new terms, they're defined using these ordinary terms of English and there isn't a role for fake news there. An extra kind of consideration here is that reclamation isn't like a cost-neutral exercise. So reclaiming a term is hard work. That's a lesson that we can draw from the history of like social slur terms or racial slur terms. And there's kind of just this practical question to be asked, like, is it worth reclaiming terms like fake news or post-truth if they have these messy meanings, uh, given that it is going to be such hard work? And a kind of extra problem I had in the back of my mind here was that trying to reclaim uh, particularly fake news might lead to a bunch of kind of discourse level problems. So I was really concerned that if people were trying to reclaim fake news, they might have different definitions in mind and that the fight over the definition of fake news would kind of devolve into a fight over which problems people thought were important. And um, it's kind of get, gets quite pessimistic here, but you might worry that different groups of academics might propose different definitions of fake news, at least in part because they're interested in getting funding for their own kinds of projects, right? So there's kind of 
fight over the subject matter associated with fake news by people who think that different problems are important, when really they should be arguing about, kind of in a straightforward and clear way, what problems they think are important. And the kind of interesting little anecdote here, in Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, which was written before 2016, she talks about a bunch of kinds of uh, false and stereotyped information that comes out through Google search results. So particularly Google search results for um, race categories. So terms like black girls come back with a bunch of false stereotypes, but also a lot of pornographic content. So she's interested in critiquing uh, the kind of politics of this information and false information that's produced by online systems. In her postscript to that book that's written after 2016, she kind of wryly notes that lots of people were talking about fake news after she'd written most of it. Uh, and she was kind of like surprised that they were using this new term and uh, I guess a little put out because she'd been talking about these kinds of problems for ages, right? So she, she'd been interested in online misinformation, particularly to do with search results for years and years, but it was only when people started using fake news when uh, public interest started to be focused on it. And a kind of concern I have here is that if fake news gets defined in a kind of narrower set of ways, it's going to leave some people out. And I'm concerned that particularly people who are interested in epistemology, but also in critical race theory and feminism are going to get left out of that tent. So they're not going to be considered as like studying like fake news. That's really a problem that computer scientists or um, psychologists study. So the third kind of reason that I think we have for abandoning fake news and post-truth is that the terms are associated with and can in lots of cases be vehicles for bad propaganda. A little bit of uh, ground clearing work to start off here. So we need to get clear on what I mean by propaganda and what I mean by ideology. So I have in mind a very broad definition of propaganda where it's any kind of contribution to public discourse which aims to manipulate people with some political aim. So these might be kind of explicitly political um, messaging, so like messaging to vote for someone involving different kinds of manipulation. So it might be advertising. We might think that um, advertising involves a political aim, capitalism, and it manipulates people by playing on their emotions. Within that very broad definition of propaganda, I want to focus on a specific kind, which is introduced by Jason Stanley in his uh, book, uh, how propaganda works, which is called undermining propaganda. So the notion of undermining propaganda is super interesting on its own terms. It picks out a really interesting kind of mechanism by which propaganda works. So undermining propaganda is a kind of speech which appeals to some kind of ideal, while at the same time working to undermine the realisation of that ideal. So the kind of clearest examples which Stanley has are... Um, climate conspiracy theories which are interested in scientific values so interested in like uh, questioning scientific orthodoxy the scientific method um, not taking claims from authority too seriously so these are all real values of uh, science but although uh, climate conspiracy theories appeal to those ideals they actually function to undermine their realization so they're blocking up scientific progress by making scientists uh, have to engage on the project of uh, debunking all of these conspiracy theories and they're confusing the public in general. So although they're appealing to legitimate values, they work to undermine them. And 
this kind of propaganda is particularly interesting because it's a particularly pernicious kind of propaganda, right? You need to have done some work to unpack this mechanism before you can understand what's really going on in these kinds of cases. In the paper, I make the argument that fake news, at least in an important set of cases, functions as a kind of undermining propaganda. So two parts of that claim, that it appeals to a set of values and works to undermine them. So I think when we use, when lots of people use fake news, it appeals to kind of a set of epistemic ideals which are important to democratic society. So ideals about the value of free speech, the value of truth to democracy, and the importance of a well-functioning media, right? We want to call out claims that are false, and that's part of a well-functioning democracy. But the effects of the use of fake news are to undermine the realisation of those very values, right? So we're appealing to like an open press, to free speech, um, to the public having well-informed and true opinions, but the effects of using fake news are to uh, undermine the realization of those ideals, right? So we're undermining a free press, undermining uh, freedom of speech, and making people less well-informed. So two kinds of examples of fake news playing this kind of pernicious role. So a first kind of example of this pernicious effect of fake news is its use to motivate uh, censorship laws. There are, at this point, <laughs> actually too many examples to count of different countries coming in with so-called like fake news or misinformation laws, which say, look, truth is really important. We want to crack down on people sharing false or fake news claims. And the effects of those laws is that the government gains the power to censor whoever they want and a kind of um, argument that appeals to legitimate values of democracy, right? So um, the government suddenly get this right to massively uh, clamp down and censor both on social media and in the news more generally. So I'm really worried about these kinds of censorship laws. I think they're a bad thing. I think they're anti-democratic. And that when fake news is used to motivate them, it's playing this role of being undermining propaganda, right? We've got legitimate values to do with truth, but the effects of the laws is to undermine truth. A second kind of example where we get this undermining effect is in what I think of as a kind of broadly right-wing or authoritarian anti-media discourse. So what happens in the US when authoritarians and the right-wing use fake news is that it's used as a way of attacking a particular news source. So we're really used to hearing Trump talk about the fake news media, about like, uh, if you look through his tweets, there's all these examples of like talking about fake news, CNN, often, more often than not, in full caps to express emphasis. Um, and what he's doing when he says fake news is issuing an order saying, don't believe this news source in the future. He's trying to slur that news source to say it's untrustworthy, corrupt, and not worth taking seriously. And he's like signaling a set of other set of sources to look look to for your news. So right, don't go to the so-called mainstream media, go to alternative news sites. Two things to say about this. So first is that this kind of speech is replacing kind of open and clear discussion about who to believe, uh, which news sources to trust with kind of hidden commands about who to trust. That seems like it, it's problematic from the point of view of democracy because hidden commands aren't the kind of things that we should want in a well-functioning uh, democratic community. 
but also the new sources that Trump is pushing people towards are sharing a bunch of false and problematic, politically bad stories, which are uh, in large part propaganda. So if people move over to these um, alternative news sites, they're going to believe more false things. I think the post post truth also has this like propagandistic function. And what happens here is that post truth is used as a kind of like way of signaling what we might think of as like a return to norms narrative. So the idea is that um, we had some crisis event, some kind of huge epistemic crisis. We've entered into some situation where things are bad, where our norms aren't being met, our epistemic norms aren't being met, people aren't valuing truth, people aren't uh, double-checking their sources and aren't trusting who they ought to trust. And the kind of return part of that narrative is that the solution to having entered this bad situation is to roll the kind of clock back to a former era, the pre-post-truth era, where kind of everything was fine. So the thought is like, things aren't what they used to be, and we should move like our epistemic institutions uh, or maybe move people back to how they were behaving in the past. Now, there's a bunch of issues with this kind of narrative. Um, one issue is that it seems to kind of move the blame from uh, having bad institutions to individuals not valuing truth enough. So it kind of like does a weird kind of transformation of a structural problem into an individual problem. But I think it's also just false that there was ever like a pre-post-truth era, right? We've had widespread epistemic problems like for as long as there have been democracies, right? Like this is an ongoing issue and it's it's a deeply political move and a problematic move to say that there was some kind of like golden era in the past where things were epistemically speaking fine and everyone believed the truth. Like there were big problems, particularly for minority groups in uh Kind of what you might think of as like traditional news media um, in whatever the golden era is, the 1940s or the 1960s. A kind of interesting question here is why so many academics and philosophers got caught up in using a set of terms that have a set of actually quite serious problems. So I think that two things were going on here. So one thing is that philosophers were quite rightly interested in engaging with public discourse doing public philosophy, and they took up terms that they were seeing being used in public discourse, perhaps like a little bit uncritically, and there needed to be like a um, kind of extra step of thinking about what was going on with the politics of those terms. And another thing that was kind of happening, perhaps in academia more broadly, was that people felt like 2000, the kind of events of 2016, the um, EU referendum vote and the election of Donald Trump were this kind of like rupture event where all of our narratives for thinking about uh, the progress of democracy and the epistemic life of democracy broke, a broke down and people started thinking that this was like a massive crisis, a kind of crisis of uh, knowledge or a crisis of uh, the role of truth in democracy. And although I kind of think it's understandable to try and want narratives for thinking about these kind of surprising events, the crisis narrative isn't the right one to pull on. If we think about democracies like historically, there have been examples of like widespread falsehoods spread by uh, news media, spread by politicians, spread by like public servants, as long as there have been democracies. So this, the crisis narrative has like highs up the fact that democracy uh, kind of historically has always been in a state of epistemic crisis. So as I'm recording this, right, I'm recording this from <laughs> home under lockdown uh, 
um, because of the coronavirus. And look, we're collectively in a situation where there's a huge amount of false information floating around the internet and newspapers um, about like potential cures for coronavirus, like different things to be worried about, transmission rates. And in this kind of situation, you might think that it's actually really helpful to have a term which we can use as a kind of shorthand to say like, don't believe this person, like this is a bad source or like this is like a bad story, right? You get some false message through your WhatsApp feed, like you can respond back saying like, that's fake news. So the kind of thought here is that even though fake news might be a kind of like a weapon word, um, it might actually have some useful uh, uses as a weapon. So I think I've got two kinds of thoughts about that kind of objection. So the first is that actually there are a bunch of other words we can use which aren't fake news as ways of indicating like this is really bad, like this is false, don't believe this source. So if you look at scientists who are involved in debunking coronavirus misinformation, they tend to use misinformation rather than fake news. Um, and that seems to do the same thing. You could just say like that's false, like that's false and unsupported, like put an exclamation mark after it. And even if it's true that fake news can be like a positive weapon in the hands of like someone who's got a good view of what like is plausible, what's implausible, we need to think about the cost benefit analysis, right? So are the positive uses of fake news to um, debunk false stories, uh, is the effects of those better than the negative effects of people to calling true stories fake news or um, politicians getting this term that they can use to tar the media. So my sense is, even though there are potentially positive uses of fake news, overall, we should be trying to move towards a position where we don't use the term, where we try and abandon it. But one thing I should say here is that I don't think like we should stop talking about online misinformation and the problems that we face like online and in news media. It's not that like what people are trying to get out with fake news isn't real. It's just there are better tools for thinking about the problems we face. And there are so many different problems we're facing, right? So like people sharing things without like looking at the evidence, things that aren't true or things they don't know, like bad systems, like bad incentive structures. There are lots of different problems, uh, but we need like a kind of new set of, maybe if we need new terms, we need lots of new terms, which are all kind of specialized for different kinds of problems. I'd love it if people were like, here's 14 different new things, but like none of them has any connection to fake news. <laughs> like that would be good. That's it for today's episode. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Joshua Habgood Coot, his work, and some of the resources mentioned in this episode. Special thanks to Two Cheers for creating our theme music and to Christopher McDonald for sound engineering.